Pastor John here welcoming you to our broadcast. You know, Warrington Bible Fellowship is an elder-led church. Exactly what does that mean and where does it come from? Well, let's join our service as we explore the scriptures to see who an elder is and what he does. Verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, How do we care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The reading of the word, brothers and sisters. There are... There are a lot of different church polities out there, but church polity, I'm talking about structure... And um, I, I don't think any of them are wrong. Uh, so we got to be careful that we don't think we're something special because we do things a certain way. Uh, but for, for me, for Warrington Bible Fellowship, we believe in an elder board. And, and we are an elder-led church. So for some of you, this is just going to be a reminder of where we've been for many years. For some of the newer folks, you're going to find out how we function. So the sermon title for this morning is why? Why are we an elder-led church? Why not one of these other polities? Okay, so today we're going to see four sets of scriptural guidelines for elders. We're going to see why we are an elder-led church. We're going to answer the question, what is an elder? Uh, And what does he do? Third question. And finally, how are we going to know him when we see him? So let's take a look at this first set of guidelines. Why are we an elder-led church? So we believe in the plurality of leadership as we've seen in the Bible. So there's no one person in charge of everything. Uh, We see this in James 5. James says in, in verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders, the plural in the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So we see it in James, but the Apostle Paul, his normal practice was to appoint elders, plural, Acts 14.23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, elders for them in every church, that meant that every church had elders, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So every time we see the office of elder brought up in the New Testament, 36 times, it is plural. So according to our best understanding of scriptures, there should be a team of elders who are responsible for the spiritual welfare and the spiritual health of the congregation. Now, we didn't just make this up, though. In the first century church, the apostles appointed the elders. We see that over and over again in the New Testament. But by the second century, the apostles were all dead. And the church leaders 
all of whom sat directly underneath the teaching of the apostles personally, placed candidates before the congregations, and the congregations were charged with affirming the elders. So we see this in the writings. If you want to go check, uh, early church fathers, Clement, Origen, uh, Irenaeus, uh, and, and there were several others. The tradition goes all the way back to the second century, and it's the basis for the congregational vote that we now use to affirm our elders. Now that makes us a congregational church. We've talked about this before, but I, I just want clarity on this. It, it's part of the, what the EFCA calls its ethos. It's one of its distinctives. It's, it's one of the things they hold to be true and valuable. And, and their analysis of the statement of faith says that the highest authority in the local church is the congregation under Christ. Now, this is burned into my memory because I tripped up on it during my ordination council. Okay? I kept on going, the elders, right? And everybody looked at me, wow, why don't you think about that? I don't have to think about it. It's the elders. No, really, John, why don't you just stop and think about it? It's the elders. And finally, one guy goes, okay, put that down on things that we need to review. <laughs> so, so, so the, the, now it's the congregation under Christ. It's not just the congregation. It's the congregation as they are obedient to the Lord under Christ. So the congregation determines who the elders are going to be. Then, then they agree to serve each other under the oversight and authority of the elders, so long as all parties first submit themselves unto the Lord. That's where the balance comes from. Each one submitted unto the Lord uh, rather than each one fighting for control. It's the way the church functioned after the apostles died. And this is why we are an elder-led church as opposed to an elder-ruled church. In an elder-ruled church, the elders have the ultimate and sovereign authority over the congregation, hopefully as unto the Lord. So it's just one example of church government. We think it's the one that's established by the apostolic writings and was practiced by the disciples of the apostles. So, what is an elder? Now, that's why we're an elder-led church. So, second question, second set of guidelines. What is an elder? Now, the word elder comes from uh, the Greek word presbyteros. Um, literally just means an older man charged with overseeing. Most of us satisfy that requirement, amen? With overseeing and governing the church. Uh, now, here in Warrington Bible Fellowship... Uh, we believe, again, our best interpretation of Scripture is that older person should be a man. Now, there are other churches out there. We need to be careful with this, that, that we don't become self-righteous over uh, points of secondary doctrine. There are other churches that have female elders. There are other churches that have female pastors. We're not saying those people are wrong. We're just saying that this is where we are. And w within the area that the Lord has led us, we're comfortable with this. But again, we need to be careful with this because we have a tendency to take matters of secondary doctrine and make them primary. And that becomes something that sounds a little bit like, well, I don't think they're saved. So we're not here to judge. We're not here to condemn each other. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If they believe in the same gospel we believe in, they have a different polity than we do. 
They don't have a different savior than what we do. And we need to know the distinction between the two. So the, this whole idea of where this comes from, uh, the elders have responsibility, but they're not the rulers over the church. In other words, they have to be careful not to be domineering, not to be controlling. If we're to follow the example of Jesus Christ, an elder, although he has authority, is primarily a servant, albeit a servant who has to give an account for those who are under his authority. We see this in Ezekiel 34 and several other, uh, several other passages where the elders will give an account of how they've led the people that are under their charge. So if you follow me, you see that the elders are voted in by the congregation, and the congregation agrees in their voting that these men are qualified to serve, not to dominate, and, and again, this is why we call ourselves elder-led uh, as opposed to elder-ruled. So uh, the elders do not have complete authority over every aspect of the church. Uh, in particular, they don't have complete authority over who becomes an elder, you, as the congregation do. This is a good reason to be a member of the church because you then get to, to examine and vote on those candidates that are set before you. Now, the elders do have authority. In Hebrews 13, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will give an account, let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. What is an elder? An elder is an overseer with authority to guide and nourish the congregation, but the authority isn't sovereign. They're chosen by and they serve the congregation. Our elder board vets and screens candidates. We put them before you. You get the opportunity to examine them, but you are the ones who decide if they're going to become elders. If elected, they're elected to become servants. Elders are servants. So what does an elder do? Our third set of guidelines. Well, they have authority, but they use their authority to care for, to guard to nourish and to love the congregation the way Christ would. They don't dominate the flock. They serve. Servants do what? They serve. They serve in a lot of different ways. Now, you know, this might look a little bit different to all of us, but here's essentially what elders are called to do. They pray. They pray for the congregation. They pray for the church. They pray for the leaders in the church. Uh, they pray for people who are hurting uh, and, you know, the elders at, at Warrington Bible Fellowship pray periodically, but they also are available to pray for you. And if you ever want to have prayer, if you want an elder to pray over you, if you're sick uh, or if you're troubled or if there's some situation that you're facing, we are happy to meet with you right after the service and, and pray over you. So they pray. They enact church discipline. Uh, now, this is, this is a bad word these days, and discipline has become... Uh, a euphemism for abuse, uh, but we see that there is there are consequences for unrepentant sin in the church. Uh, 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 it's another thing we need to be careful of. I've been asked why we're not disciplining people that are not in the church. We can't. We don't have that authority. Okay, but if you agree to become a member in the church, 
then you also agree to fall under our guidelines for discipline. And the guidelines for discipline are not whether or not we think you're doing, you're a bad person or we think something is going on and we can't verify. They are against unrepentant sin. So once somebody acknowledges they're in sin, then uh, as shepherds, our job is to guide them to repentance. If they refuse to repent, then you fall under church discipline. And scripture is very clear that you can't let this go on in the church. So, Uh, discipline is an important thing as an elder board we have done this four times in the 20 years that i've been on the elder board and i can tell you something it is one of the most excruciatingly painful things that an elder board will go through because we, we we have we're called to do this without judging we're called to do this without condemning so we're called to do this without getting angry Uh, without to do it with compassion with understanding and the goal of church discipline is never to punish it's to bring the the one who is being disciplined to repentance to restoration take a look at matthew 18 uh, and and you see where the guidelines for discipline come from it is to restore the brother or sister who has refused to repent bring them to repentance so they watch over uh, discipline they they monitor finances they don't control the finances we now have a business committee that's doing that. And I got to tell you something, it's been an incredible blessing over the last six months or so to have the business committee uh, administering the day-to-day function of the church and the elders can devote themselves to prayer and teaching of the word. So the elders oversee the staff, including me, and hold them accountable, including me. Uh, they teach, they write sometimes. And one of their primary functions is to establish our doctrine and theology. Uh, so the elders get together, and we, we will discuss doctrinal, theological matters, and primarily to make sure that all of our programs, everything that goes on in the classrooms, all of the, the curriculums that we use, all of the things that we teach, all of the leaders we put in place are in harmony with our best efforts in interpreting the scriptures. So we're, the elders are in charge of the doctrinal, theological direction of the church, and I got to tell you something, it, with all those things in mind, serving isn't always easy in this capacity. Congregations, ours can be very diverse, and our, our elders make their, this is what I love about our elder board, and I'm not speaking as a member of the board, I'm talking about the guys that I've watched uh, guide us through the last 21 years. They make their decisions prayerfully. They're always trying to maintain an attitude of what is best for the congregation, not what's best for me as an elder, not what's best for me in dealing with maybe some tension that might arise, but what is best and what is healthiest for the congregation. In the 21 years I've been working, I've watched, I've watched our elders work hard on making difficult decisions, decisions where somebody, maybe even a group of people are going to be mad no matter what they did. And they've always done it with the, the, the thing hanging over the decision-making process of what is best and healthiest for the congregation. They made themselves an example of how to do this as a way of encouraging you and me, of nourishing us, and caring for our soul. Now, that's, that's what an elder does. Answer your third guideline as he serves as unto the Lord. And a fourth set of guidelines. How do we know one of these guys when we see them? So we're, we're being called upon to examine them. How, how do we know this? Uh, 
And how do we examine? What do these questions look like? And so we go back to our First Timothy 3 passage I read you a little earlier, which it's a classic description of what an elder should be. You should go back and read it again. But combined with the qualities that we see in the book of Titus, chapter 1, verses 5, listen to this. This is why I left you in Crete, he says to Titus, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and do not, are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So if you put that passage in 1 Timothy, together with this passage we see in Titus, you get a tidy, concise description of what an elder should look like. And that's important for us, particularly on a day like today, because we're going to have the opportunity to examine Bill and David before we vote for them as to whether or not they should be elders. Now, again, the process will begin with Tentatively, we've got to double-check the date with Diane <laughs> on August 2nd. Um, the guidelines that we're seeing here will help us in knowing what type of questions we should ask. I love this because uh, the questions kind of come from all over the place. And uh, one, of the, one of the primary questions that always pop up during an elder examination, do you have a vision for the church? Not one of the qualifications. <laughs> You know, and I've heard people say, well, if there's no vision for the church, how can they lead? And uh, it's just not one of the qualifications. We're looking at the type of character and integrity that, uh, that these men have. So here's what's expected of the elders. They should be above reproach. That means they should be of good reputation. They should be men of integrity. You may be accused from time to time, but the accusations haven't held up under examination. To be husband of one wife. Now, we can spend a lot of time debating what this actually means, okay? What we understand it to be is not necessary for them to be married. doesn't have to be a husband of one wife. But if they are, they should be faithful and true to the one that they marry. Uh, having fidelity in marriage, a, a one-woman man, if you would. They should be having children, and the word for children here is technon, and that means young children who believe. And that can be interpreted two different ways. We can be talking about little children, sons and daughters not yet of adult age. Or it could be talking about spiritual children, others that they have discipled, others that they have witnessed to. And we, we kind of see it both ways, but we do not see in this requirement that it should extend to adult children who are responsible for their own spiritual welfare. So, should be managed, uh, he should manage his house well. And listen to me carefully. This does not mean that an elder should never have problems. 
it does not mean that there should never be strife or tension in their home. What it means is they should manage their house in a godly fashion. In other words, they should encounter those problems, those tensions in a godly fashion. The house is not devoid of problem, but maintaining a godly house is a high priority for the elder. And to us, it's more important that an elder handles problems in a godly manner than pretending he doesn't have any problems at all, doesn't want anybody to find out about them. We'd rather be able to walk through all this together. So he should be keeping his children under control with all dignity. It's not a mandate to have perfect children. For those of you who have had children, have any of them been perfect? <laughs> My mother would agree with you. <laughs> okay, so we, we kind of, we go through these and, and, and put a surface value on it. Oh, the kids have got to be well-behaved. They shouldn't be running around and putting cracker crumbs on, on the carpet. Oh, they're going to do it no matter what. <laughs> okay. So it's not a mandate to have perfect children, perfect young ones. It's a directive to have them under control and to have them disciplined in such a manner that they honor their parents. Maybe not all the time, but there's a trajectory here that they're respective of other people. They're not in open, blatant, and consistent rebellion against the authority of their parents or the authority of God. They should be temperate. Sober, self-controlled, not experiencing fits of anger. They should be prudent. That that means self-restrained, not erratic, running all over the place and following this passion and that teaching and and this and that and just going all over the place. They should be respectable, which means generally orderly and decent. It doesn't mean they can't have a good time. They can't enjoy themselves. They should not have a bad reputation in the community. Uh, they, they should be one who reflects the love and the compassion of Jesus Christ. Everything we've been teaching, and, and it should be done in a positive light outside there in the community, inside here as well. They should be hospitable. Now, that doesn't mean that they should have people over for dinner every Sunday, but it means that they should be friendly. They should be loving. They should be kind to strangers and brothers and sisters in the faith. They should be able to teach, able to communicate Christian teaching. Now, we need to be careful with this one as well uh, because we're told that, that we should give double honor to those who oversee us, in particular, the ones who teach. So an elder is not necessarily a full-time teacher. He may teach here and there. He may teach one thing or the other, but he's not necessarily going to be teaching all the time. Some of us are gifted to be teachers. Not all of us are gifted to be full-time teachers in our engagement with the body. So the ability to teach is there, but not the demand to teach. So they should be able to to understand the doctrine. They should be able to communicate the doctrine when asked about it. And, you know, all of our elders are well-equipped to do that. Uh, They should be not addicted to wine. Oh, boy. (laughs) Okay. This does not mean that if they've got a bottle of wine uh, on their shelf or in their refrigerator that they can't be an elder. It means that they shouldn't be alcoholics because if you have an addiction in one area of your life it's bound to show up in other areas of your life so and addictions are really nothing more than saying god this is more important than god to me so and we all know the abuses that can happen with alcoholism so they should be not addicted to wine they should not be pugnacious 
They should neither be physically nor verbally violent and angry. They should not be confrontational in an abusive way. They should be gentle. They should be fair. They should be equitable, yielding when necessary, and considerate of others. They should be peaceable. Now, I love this because we're in a time where it's not very accepted to be peaceable. Everybody's shouting and screaming at each other, my rights, your rights, you know, I want you to think this, I want you to think that, and if you don't think this, you're a hater. And I mean, there's all sorts of rhetoric that's floating around that promotes anything but peace, but an elder should be not contentious, not quarrelsome, not disposed to fighting. Listen to me. This means... And we're not supposed to be on social media saying, somebody get rid of these Democrats. Do you hear me? <laughs> or somebody get rid of this guy. Or uh, somebody used to be a member of the church, put up on their social feed the other day, these people are idiots. Now, what does Scripture say about calling somebody a fool? Okay? And, and all of that, which we're taught, we're taught that that's acceptable We're taught that if we're not doing that, something's wrong with us. All of that, listen carefully, leads to self-righteousness. It leads to pharisaical behavior. I'm right, you're wrong, you need to come around to my way of thinking. Isn't that what we complain about, what's happening in the culture, that they're insisting that we think their way, and meanwhile we're sitting there going, no, you should be thinking my way. Nobody's going to win that argument. Elders should be bringing peace. They should not be quarrelsome, peaceable. They should be free from the love of money. doesn't mean they shouldn't be free of money. They shouldn't be covetous to money. It shouldn't be the primary motivator in their lives. Uh, they They should bear in mind that God is a priority in all things. This is this is how you examine an elder, to determine these things, whether or not they believe these things. So, These are the types of questions you're going to have to ask these two men. We have these four scriptural guidelines for the elders. Why are we an elder-led church? Well, we believe scripture displays the plurality of leadership. And, you know, we are in a time right now where we've seen where a church is led by one person. Um, There's all sorts of abuse that's going on. And it comes from no accountability. Uh, I praise God. When I came here in 1999, I didn't believe in an elder-led church. I believe that a church should be pastor-led. And it, it, it took me about three years to understand the advantage of having the guy that's standing up here on Sunday morning accountable to somebody. And, you know, our elders do that with me. They did it with Scott when he was here, do it with Diane and anybody else who stands in the pulpit. So we believe in plurality of leadership. What is an elder? A servant given charge of overseeing your soul. What does he do? Well, he serves, and he does that by praying, by by teaching, by establishing a doctoral foundation underneath the church so that we know what we believe and why we believe it. I love that. You know, all of our efforts have been to not just tell you what we believe, what we believe the scriptures say, but why. Why? So that when it comes your time to defend your faith, you understand where you stand, not just they told me that. So what you believe and why you believe, and they should be loving, and at times they should be disciplining. How are we going to know them when we see them? It'll be a living example of the Scriptures. 
He'll exemplify all these things. And I want, I want you to think about this because none of these qualifications are anything special. They should be all of us. We should all be exemplifying these attributes that we see in the elders. So that doesn't mean that the elders are a step above everybody. It just says they set the bar. And they, the, the bar that they're setting is in accordance with what Scripture says about how all of us should walk. So we're not calling them to a higher standard. We're looking to them to see if they can walk the walk so that we can walk the walk as well. We're an elder-led church. I spent a lot of time studying the Bible since Kelly and I came back in 99. And the more I do, the more I'm convinced that WBF follows the scriptural model for church polity and governance and eldership. Why is this important? Let me tell you why I think it's important. And I had no idea that we were going to be in this position when they asked me to come on staff as an intern in 2002. I, I, the first thing I thought was, well, I'll never be pastor. And I didn't really want to be pastor. Yeah. And as things rolled out and it became obvious that at some point I would be pastor, I would never have designed this ministry this way. I, I, I just wouldn't have done it. I, I, I would have been more experiential, more capricious, flying over here, flying over there, doing that. You know, I, 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 if, if somebody had said in 2002, you're going to be pastor, I would have laughed. If they had said, you're going to be an expositor, I would have said, what's that? I had no idea, okay? And so, but now I see that for the last 21 years, going on 22, God has been preparing us for this, for this. And, you know, we've talked about this before. We're, we're in a time where everything is up for grabs. We're being told there's no truth, that everybody has their own truth. And, and, and that's bad enough. I mean, that's kind of been the world for a long time. But what's even worse is the church, in particular, the evangelical church, the Protestant church, that's us. You know we're part of the Protestant church, right? Okay? People every now and then go, no, we're not part of the Protestant church. We're evangelicals. Yeah. Okay, the Protestant church was formed as a protest against the, the abuse of the Catholic church in the 15th century. So we're part of the Protestant church. And in particular, the Protestant evangelical church has become haters. You know, don't know how it happened. I, you know, I, I don't think we helped the situation. But all of a sudden, from, gone from being the good guys to being a bunch of uh, narrow-minded, misogynistic haters. Uh, and, and the world's just, there's this subtle turn against us. And we are in a period where if you don't know what you believe and what you stand for, you may have a problem going forward. Now, I've told you that a lot of the distinctives we have 
are not essentials of the faith. It's okay if the church down the road does things a little bit different. Oh, you got to baptize this way. And you got to do communion this way. And you got to read this version of the Bible. And so we're constantly putting ourselves against each other. Instead of having the compassion and the understanding and the, the, the belief in what we believe, the essentials, bringing us together. And the world will use that to drive us further apart. So these are the things we believe. And we're doing our very best to tell you why we believe in them. For when that moment comes that you're tested, you know what to say. You don't have doubt floating around in your mind because somebody's come up with some reasoning that sounds pretty good to you. So this is important. It's important that not only have we searched the scriptures, but we've made a stand. We go, this is where we are. Some other people may be a little bit different from us. It's okay. You know, when I meet other pastors, and this has been going on with me for quite some time because I've had to deal with this, my question is, what is the gospel? When I went down and visited the people at the Warrington Pregnancy Center, my first question was, can you tell me what the gospel is? There were all these accusations about, oh, they belong to this denomination and that, and we can't do this. And the director of the center said, well, for me, she said, I don't know about you, <laughs> but for me, the gospel is salvation in Christ alone, by faith alone, by grace alone. And I went, okay, we're in business. <laughs> because that's the essentials, right? Those are the essentials. We have an amazing tendency to make the secondary issues primary. So we can stand beside any other church that has a slightly different secondary doctrine. It doesn't mean we're going to send people there. It doesn't mean we're going to invite their pastors over here to share our pulpit. All it means is we can go out into this community that we have been given the charge over and say, the gospel is Jesus Christ. If you confess your sins and repent and turn to him and call him the Lord of your life, then you'll have eternal life. That's the gospel. We can gather around this at a time where the culture is saying that's nothing but bigotry. And that's why these things are important. And now we can see with clarity why God put us on this path 22 years ago. He actually did it long before that. It's just God moving things around and saying, this is how I want it to be. Amen? Okay, so we'll solidify these dates. I'll get them out to everybody. Uh, I'll send that list of qualifications out so you can take a look at it and the scripture passages. And I appreciate your patience. Every now and then we have to give pause to things and say, this is who we are and this is how we do things. And I appreciate your cooperation with it. And I appreciate you people at home uh, spending time with us as well. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. We give you praise because you, Father, are Lord over this church. Let us never forget that. Father, as you put things in place, we pray, Father, that we would agree on them in unity. Uh, Father, that there would be healthy and even robust discussion. But in the final analysis, we would turn to you and that you would have your way with us in everything that we do. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So before you leave, stand up. Let me give you a blessing.
I really love you guys. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Be blessed in the name of Christ. You at home be blessed as well. Thank you. Have a good morning. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. Would you click on the like button below that little thumbs up? If you're listening on sermon audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at WBFVA. We're on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at WBFVA.org. Just click on Giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.